Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So we've come on a reasonably cheerful field trip. We have to my place of work. It's a beautiful day, and I know your place of work is raucous at the best of times, but, I mean, this is really something. It's, it's child raucous or student raucous, because we're here at the student climate protest. And this has been inspired by the young Swedish woman, Greta Thunberg, yeah. in, in a way. Yes. Uh, that speech she Good did. When, thank you very much. I pride myself on it. Yeah. Um, she, the, the speech she made... Uh, about the the peril that her generation are aware that the planet is in went viral and it's inspired a lot of young people and that has led to this uh, they're calling it a student strike today yeah and we're going to be talking to some of the young people here and we're also going to be talking to the in the episode about this idea of a green new deal which has been pioneered or at least made famous by alexandra cassio cortez in america we're going to be talking to one of her advisors uh, who's in a way some of the brains behind the operation uh, and also to somebody in Britain who was talking about a Green New Deal even 10 years ago, Anne Pettifer. So I think it's, we're, we're talking about the whole issue of climate, the way young people have mobilised, but also about some of the solutions. And you've got a, a, a personal connection to the young people's strike today. My son Daniel, who heard about it, wanted to come, got permission from his head teacher on the condition that he then reported back uh, to his classmates about what happened. So our reasons to be cheerful, we thought what we'd do is uh, just pick a placard each and each have one as a reason to be cheerful. So my favourite sign is, be cool, be green, don't be a dinosaur. That's, it's good. Some very good artwork as well young, on these signs. By, by a young child called Harper, who I think was eight. And mine is, predictably, I've gone for something a bit lowbrow. Um, it, it says, uh, uh, clean up the planet, it's not Uranus. He just scowled at me. what I would expect. (laughs) You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Tell us why you're here today. Because this is such an urgent issue that I think that the government really needs to kind of actually address because they can make promises, they can go to the Paris Climate Accord, they can say we'll do this, but then we see no actual change. What change would you like to see? I'd like to see some sort of effort to reduce the CO2 emissions, more emphasis on making public transport, um, more hybrid buses, more electric buses, more switches to um, uh, biodegradable fuel. They need to make a change and they need to do it now while we have the time because there will not be time in the future for this. And does somebody want to talk to me about the changes you're making in your own lives around climate change? Like I've always been raised to recycle and it's those small things that we implement in our lives, especially at our school. We are encouraged all, all the time to recycle and it's think they've allowed us to come here today because they support this cause just as strongly as we do. And I'm quite saddened that not all schools feel the same way. And we've heard in the press that people have just been bashing young people because we are using our initiative to go and protest and strike against something that the government... And I do believe it's not just a government issue, it's across all parties are not doing enough to combat. It's just not being treated seriously enough. It's not that there isn't the technology. The thing is, the main criticism of the strike is generally, oh, people should be going to school because then you can become a climate scientist or you can develop the things we have already developed, this technology, for example, and also massive corporations have been suppressing this technology for years and it's common public knowledge as well and governments bow to this pressure and they should be ashamed of themselves for doing so. The teachers understand, but the... uh 
kind of the main people, like the main ones, don't really want us to come. Why are you here? Um, we believe that there needs to be more British government intervention in the in climate, and I believe there's a lot more we can do to help save our future. Like just because the consequence isn't now, people think it won't happen. And it's like our, our, our head of year just out there taking our posters down, just not encouraging letting us go. It's unauthorised. Someone like me who cares about climate change, who wants to have a future for myself and yeah. my kids, to, to, to be given an unauthorised absence for a protest of something I believe in, I feel like that's unfair. I think this is our chance. This is the students' chance to show off that what really matters. And I can't, I can't, like, climate change is something that we, the younger generation, have to deal with instead of the older generation. Can we please get a picture? Of course. <laughs> Yes, we are, but I like So I thought we would come into this demonstration, this protest, because Ed believes the children are our future and he cares deeply about what the planet will look like for them in 10, 20, 30 years' time. In actual fact, it looks like he's here because he's being millimobbed. There's levels of milli fandom that we haven't previously seen. Uh, it's, it's like Beatlemania, but it's Edmania. Uh, I, I'm losing track of the amount of selfies that have been taken with Ed so far. And, you know, not, not great for my self-esteem, I'll be honest. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we've come away from the excitement of the climate march um, to a quiet place to talk to somebody who I'm a great fan of, Anne Pettifer. She's the director of Prime Economics, but... Even more importantly for our purposes, she was one of the founders of the whole idea of the Green New Deal more than 10 years ago in the UK. And indeed, she's just come off the march where her grandchildren were. That's right. How, yes. what, what, what did you think of the march? I thought it was so... Well, I, I was a little bit nervous about going. I felt sad about having to go. I felt sad that my seven-year-old grandson was going to have to be on this or be on it. And then when I got there, the energy was unbelievable. It was so... You know, they were so... They, they, the energy began as we entered the underground at Baker Street and came down the escalator, these girls were all yelling with excitement. You know, It was great. We're talking about the Green New Deal as well as the climate protest on this um, episode of the podcast. You were there at the creation of the Green New Deal. Tell us sort of what motivated you to come up with the idea and then tell us about the content of it, just to get us so we can sort of, for our listeners, kind of locate what does it actually mean. Right, OK. Well, first of all, the actual Green New Deal word, phrase, I think was uh, thought up by Friedman, uh, the um, journalist on the New York Times. Thomas before, Friedman, Thomas right. Friedman before 2007. But in 2007 Colin Hines, who had worked at Greenpeace for a long time, convened a group of his pals, and I was one of them. And what we were trying to do was to address the triple crunch, because this is in the middle of the financial crisis, but it's before layman's crashed. So we, the triple crunch we thought we faced was one, financial crisis, two, climate crisis, and three, uh, peak oil. We believed that we were heading towards peak oil. Well, of course, that was a wrong story, but never mind. So the fact is that the things that... I wanted to get across was that you cannot do anything about the climate unless you do something about the economy. You've got to transform the economy because it's the economy that, if you like, has created the crisis. And and that's very hard for Greens to do. A Greens, green campaigners and activists tend to compartmentalise it into this is nature, this is the environment, and leave economics to the chaps in pinstripe suits. And we said, no, 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 we have to integrate these. So so can you give me the key elements of the New Deal that you came up with? So the first element is to do with the financial system, the financing of it, the taxation associated, sort of the financial side of managing the transformation of the economy away from carbon. The second element was greater energy efficiency and and labor generating activity which is you know substituting carbon labor for carbon a big idea at that time was to retrofit every property in britain home insulation essentially. home insulation uh, to make our our buildings more energy efficient because so many emissions are linked to our buildings how closely does the uh, the the u.s Green New Deal that we're hearing about? How closely does that resemble your proposals? So what happened was a year ago, this, about this time last year, Zach Exley turned up on my doorstep and He's said, going to be turning up on ours soon yeah, too. Yeah, right. And he said, um, 
I've come from the US. We've set up something called Justice Democrats. We'd like to get 20 left-wing Democrats elected uh, in the midterms. And with her thinking about the presidential, the 2020 president, but we have no economic strategy. And he'd read my book, and he has a little plug. It's called The Production of Money. And he loved it. And in particular, he loves that phrase that Keynes used, which was, we can afford what we can do. In other words, that we'd developed a monetary system to enable us to do what we can do. And there are limits to what we can do. But there are not limits to the use we can make of our monetary system to enable us to do what. So anyway, he loved that. So we began talking, had some meetings. He went back home. And then one day he pops up with a Google Doc and says, here's the Green New Deal. And so basically that they are the same, that the elements are all the same. But they downplay the question of financing at the moment and of the monetary system. And instead, they focus on taxation. I'm, I'm hap- unhappy with too much of a focus on taxation, and we can talk about that. And they, they also focus on the social justice angle of it. It's interesting, isn't it, about thinking back on it, about the – and I should take some responsibility because I was in the government of the time – the discretionary choices that – ministers made and you know i think that actually gordon brown and alistair darling did a good job of preventing uh, you yes. know recession becoming depression and so on but yeah it was sort of let's cut vat for example which cost i don't know 12 billion or something it was less let's put the money into like a public works program yes. is, is, i yes. mean I, i'm less talking about the specific decisions those individuals made and i'm more wondering whether that's just a is that just a sort of bias in the system? Is that what, 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 do, what do we learn about that? Well, Ed, I remember working with you and meeting you when you were at the Department of the Environment, and I was working with Operation Noah, the church's yeah, uh, green yeah. campaign. I mean, the thing about the decisions that were taken by, in particular, Alistair Darling, I think Gordon played a, a magnificent role, actually, in stabilizing the system at a time when there was no other world leadership for that. Um, But then the Treasury and the old Treasury mindset kicked in, basically. And, and for example, the proposal to cut VAT and the other proposal, which was to encourage people to hand in their old cars and buy new ones. Do you remember? That was so counter the need at that time in relation to the climate. And and you and I both members of the Labour Party. I've been for, it feels like, a very long time. Um, But the Labour Party hasn't, if you like, integrated the whole green question, the whole climate question into its DNA, really. It's still worried about this. And and in a way, it's a wider thing for politics, isn't it? And it's reflected in government departments, as you say, which is that the environment sort of sits over there. Yes. And then there's everything else. Exactly. So it's a compartmentalised thing. And we, you know, we might have to conserve bits of it, think the, the, the policymakers. But they don't, they don't for example, see it as integrated into the economy and vice versa. You know, if we're going to do something about the environment, we have to reverse the economy too. And they they may think about that. They may know that that's what we have to do. It may be why they're so quiet about it. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, the green groups do a fantastic job in this country, but they also think tend to think about the environment separate from economic and social justice. Absolutely. They don't think it has... You see, the thing, and that's hard, because the environment is such a tangible thing. You know, we we get hit by storms or burned by sun and we, you know, encounter nature every day. We never, ever encounter the monetary system. It's invisible. It's intangible. It's out there in the stratosphere. So it is hard. But, I mean, there's plenty of people in the city of London who understand it, you know, and there's plenty of people in the Treasury who should understand it but who I don't think do. Just talk to us about the financing question. Yeah. So... We can see there's lots of things that need to be done, whether it's um, the retrofitting of homes, the building of electric cars, yeah. production of wind turbines, solar panels. Or th- th- yes. There's a huge amount to be done to make this transition happen. Just in simple terms, yeah. what's your preferred method of financing? So, um, for me, this is on a scale that requires government financing. It, it requires state financing. And the state is quite capable of financing uh, huge tasks like this. If we were to go to war tomorrow, the, 
the state would find the means to finance that. Now, there are constraints on the state's ability to raise finance, and I don't want to go into that at length. But essentially what it amounts to is that the government issues an asset, a bond, I promise to pay. And that asset is purchased by financial markets because it becomes collateral, for example, for insurance companies or pension funds or asset management funds, BlackRock. For this example. is essentially government borrowing, is it? It's government borrowing, but we need to, I, we think about it so negatively. Sure. It's, it's an investment. Also, it, it's about government creating, as I say, this asset, which is an asset for pension funds, and, but which is a liability for the government, yeah. right? Having created this asset, the government has then raised finance. Now, it's possible for the, that asset to be purchased by the markets, by the private sector, but also by the Bank of England. This is what quantitative easing has so been quantity doing. is that, yes. But the, the, and people have said that we shouldn't just have QE, as it's called, but we should have green QE, which would be government, uh, the Bank of England, buying, essentially investing in, in green Exactly. Investment. The way it works is that the government issues an asset, a bond, saying I want to borrow money for the Department of Environment to do this, that and the other. The Bank of England can put that asset on its balance sheet and in exchange it gives the government liquidity finance, right? And that's how all QE works. And it has to work that way. Otherwise, we just have a bunch of technocrats at the Bank of England deciding whether to host... Which is sort of what has happened. I mean, it's interesting. We On a previous episode, we talked about QE and where the money had gone. Yes. And a lot of it went into fossil fuels and all of that. It went into those that sector of the economy that could give the Bank of England the kind of assets the, the Bank of England is allowed to hold. It can't hold any old rubbish. Right. You know, it couldn't hold, hold, you know, the insurance on my car, right, which is 20 years old, right? Because that would... It's, Are you saying you're a bad bet? I'm a bad bet in that sense. <laughs> but, you know, if they've got... They, for example, if they had government debt on their books, they could give that to the, to the Bank of England and get liquidity for it. So the trouble with it was that it operated at that scale. And that's important for the monetary system. But what is really more important for the environment is that the government should use the financing it then has to invest and to use fiscal policy for investment, because now it's got all the financing it needs, now it's got to go after projects. The spending of it generates income, both for the people who are employed, you know, the, the companies, the private companies that get the contract to build the railway line or whatever it is, the people employed by that through that contract, and also the government, because the people who are employed pay taxes, and that goes back to the government to pay for the debt. They go shopping or buy a rent a house or whatever, and the, there's taxes on that which go back to the government. Shopkeeper makes a profit. He has to pay taxes on that. And so the government gets back its investment. And in this sense, as Keynes argued, you know, the spending pays for itself. And look, you're, you're very much a poor person ahead of your time in terms of this idea. I'm really glad that it's now coming to fruition. And um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to say that we are joined now in my house, not in normal surroundings, by Zach Exley, who is co-founder of Justice Democrats, co-author of an excellent book called Rules for Revolutionaries, and worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Zach, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, we're talking about the Green New Deal today, but I kind of feel the Green New Deal, at least in the American context, has become indelibly associated with Alexandra Casio-Cortez, a young congresswoman from New York who is sort of setting progressives on fire with her charisma and, and ideas. And you had a interesting hand in kind of getting her to Congress. Well, yeah. Well, and Alexandria proposed the Green New Deal. So that's, you know, that's why she's associated with it. She got this started. And there there was a handful of us from the Bernie Sanders campaign that after the campaign was over, we decided to uh, run around the country and do this crazy idea to recruit a whole bunch of new non-politicians to run for Congress. And our initial idea was that we were going to recruit 400 of them. We knew it was a crazy idea, uh, but we said we were going to try it anyways. And we we recruited uh, a handful of really awesome candidates. She was the one who won. And because of the circumstances around how she, you know when she won, who she defeated, and who she is, of course, and 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 the the amazing you know leader that she is, she really uh, made huge news and became a, a you know has become a new national leader in the U.S. And am I right in thinking that fairly much all the people who've expressed an interest 
in running for president. Uh, all the Democrats have, have signed up to the Green New Deal. Yes, and which is, you know, to me, kind of just uh, really surprising. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of the if you if you if we went back in time three months and we asked all the all these presidential candidates, you know, what would you think about running on this platform? You know, sweeping transformation of the economy, huge visionary uh, stuff. It's going to be very expensive. It's going to require tons of government leadership in the economy. They, they, they also, they would have laughed. They wouldn't have even have listened. They, you know, they would have tuned out after the first three words. And now they're endorsing this proposal. So they've, they're co-sponsoring the proposal in the, in the Senate. So it's really weird. It's kind of like, uh, it's great and, 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 and everything's happening very quickly and, um, it's hard to interpret what's happening right now. And tell us, Zach, the thinking behind putting the Green New Deal front and center. I mean, both your thinking and uh, Alexandra Casio Cortez, who's obviously, as, as we've said, the main sort of sponsor of this. You know, Alexandria ran on the Green New Deal. She talked about the Green New Deal a lot when she was uh, running for Congress. And also, the, the Justice Democrats was a block of candidates. The idea was it was a block of candidates running on this giant transformational program, economic transformational program. So that was a big part of what all of our candidates were, were, were running on. So the idea is that we actually need a transformation of our economy uh, if we're going to, first of all, survive. The whole world economy needs to be transformed. Um, the United States is still the biggest uh, single industrial economy in the world. And so the United States is a huge uh, piece of the equation of solving this problem and, and ending greenhouse emissions and doing all the other stuff that we need to do to save the planet. So we have to do this. It's, it's this weird situation where, and this is why I think the Green New Deal is starting to become uh, a little more mainstream and a little more accepted, is, you know, it used to be that people would just say, it's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible. It's too big, too crazy. But now you can say, well, what's the alternative? How are we going to solve uh, this problem that's actually going to make the planet unlivable. Uh, and then people, you know, they say, oh, okay, let me think about this a little bit more. They give a little bit more thought because the alternative is unthinkable. You know, the, if we take too long to, to transition the planet, uh, to transition the global economy, if we take too long or if we never do it, the, 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 the consequences are just unthinkable. And, and can we talk about the Green New Deal itself? Um, can yeah. you give us an overview Please. of it and maybe give us some of, uh, some of the key elements yeah. of the deal? The Green New Deal is basically just a big uh, chunk of work that we know we have to do. So there's a whole bunch of projects. The Green New Deal is really oriented towards projects that need to get done. Uh, that's half of it. The other half of it is that if we're going to do all this work, Right, and this is really a you know what we say in the U.S. This is a World War II scale economic mobilization because World War World War II as an economic mobilization um, well, it, it is a really um, valuable example for us to to go to. Uh, but if we're going to do all this work and to transform our economy, we we really need to do it in a way that brings justice and opportunity and equality to all Americans, right and. A lot of people are saying, well, you're throwing in all this justice and social justice stuff into the Green New Deal, and that's really getting in the way of actually just solving the climate problem. Uh, but that's not the way we see it at all, because we live in a democracy. So the only way we're actually going to get action, the only way we're going to be able to undertake all of these giant projects and make all these transformations is if people are paid properly to do the work. One basic project is we need to upgrade every single home and building for energy efficiency and to, to uh, eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from buildings. But in, in the U.S., 40% of our energy is consumed by heating and cooling and cooking things and other stuff in houses and buildings. So, it, but, but we know that if we just uh, not just spray a little insulation into the walls, but actually do something really kind of serious with the walls and like add a whole nother layer of insulation, if we replace the windows with, with new, not even very expensive, um, um, high tech kinds of windows and do a whole bunch of other stuff, we know that we can make buildings, our, all of our buildings and homes, um, net producers of energy, not consumers of energy. You put solar panels on some of the roofs, 
um, and 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 you get it, you get the buildings down to where they're barely requiring any energy at all, which is very possible, uh, very practical. And suddenly, our buildings we've eliminated forty percent of our need for energy, and these buildings are actually producing some energy. So that's one project. Another project is we need to get all of the combustion vehicles off the road and replace them with electric vehicles, or maybe there's some other technologies that, that might become practical, like hydrogen, for in some cases. Um, that, uh, that means making massive investments into our auto industry. You know, some of these auto manufacturers have, have said they're not going to produce cars in America anymore. Ford has said it's basically not going to produce cars. They're just producing trucks in America now. So there are all these giant uh, auto factories that are just sitting there waiting for us to do this thing that we know we absolutely need to do, which is uh, to, to produce a bunch of electric vehicles. Of course, we do need public transportation to be completely expanded and overhauled. There's a whole bunch of ways to do that. Uh, and, and none of this is rocket science. It's all very practical. So, and, and I picked on those kinds of projects because that's, those are the pro- kinds of things that usually don't get brought up, right? Usually the first thing that people bring up when they talk about the transition is we need to build a lot of windmills and solar panels. Which is presumably part of the plan too. It is, yes. Yeah. And we do need to do that. Um, but I just wanted to make clear yeah. that if, because if that's all we do, this really isn't going to work. We're not going to get there. So it's homes, transport. And power, basically. Uh, well, but there's so much more. So, so also tons of greenhouse gas emissions come from industry, from making steel, from making chemicals. We know how to um, upgrade those processes so that they're powered by electricity and so that they don't emit greenhouse gases. Uh, and we, it's just going to take huge investments into our industries uh, to get them there. How much of a, a sense of emergency is there amongst the electorate in America? Because I think we can tend to think of the US as slightly more climate change skeptic than European countries. When you talk about there being this need to treat it like something like a, a World War Two economic situation, are the public on board with that beyond Democrat voters or, or voters to the left of Democrat voters? Uh, the the, I mean, the, if, if you look at the polls, the, you know, big majorities of Americans are really, uh, they believe in climate change, they're really worried about it. Uh, you know, very big numbers, uh, I forget the exact percentages, but really significant percentages of, Amer- of American people are alarmed about climate change. You know, a huge chunk of America is alarmed about climate change. But actually, the situation is very similar to before the U.S. entered World War II. As uh, Britain remembers, it took us a long time to get into the war. <laughs> and there was no support in, in the U.S. Very, I should say there was very little support for the U.S. to get into World War II. The, the public was very divided in all kinds of ways. Uh, but eventually uh, there, were, there were these moments that brought more and more people on board, including events uh, in Europe, uh, but then, of course, Pearl Harbor. And that's exactly how this is going to play out. There's, you know, it's already playing out that way. The wildfires in California were a huge wake-up call. That really changed the way a lot of people thought. So I guess there's a critique from the right. I think President Trump has said this. Uh, it's sort of taking away Americans' right to, um, uh, you know, have use cows. their cars, yeah. have cows, eat hamburgers, eat hamburgers uh, fly on planes, how do you – I think one Republican congressperson called it a socialist fever dream. What, how do you react to that critique? You know, socialism is one thing, but, but going and upgrading all of the homes and buildings in the country has nothing to do with socialism. Yeah. It's just common it, sense. Yeah, and the way – you know, the way you do that is – the way we're talking about doing it, it – this is not specified in the resolution, but in the think tank I work with, we're trying to develop these ideas that imagine a scheme where – we have a new green bank or something, uh, you know, a homes, uh, you know, new American home upgrade bank, who knows what it should be called. It's giving out investments, upfront startup capital to small firms uh, and worker-owned co-ops uh, all over the country to, to train up, to staff up, to, to build up so that they can do this work. Well, that's very capitalist, right? Those are investments into firms that are going to go do work that's going to make a profit. Um, that is not socialism. Uh, so you, we could talk about socialism, but, there, but the, to, to do the work that's in the Green New Deal, it doesn't have anything to do with socialism. 
One other criticism is that this has not been this is not a costed plan. Is that something that's going to happen as the legislation gets developed? What's your response to that? Well, my response, and you know, is that it, first of all, uh, World War II was not a costed plan, right? You know, they, they didn't start World War II and say, "Here's the budget," you know. And when Wall Street uh, was about to go out of business, you know, and destroy the world economy. Nobody said, you know, yeah. the, the, the Treasury Secretary, you know, and, and the Fed Chairman and the President, neither of them uh, across that crisis, came and said, here's our costed plan, you know, yeah. to bail out Wall Street. They didn't do that, right? And the planet was not at stake. Really, Wall Street bonuses were at stake. And, you know, I know, yes, there was a real problem we had to solve with the world economy. But the, but the way we chose to solve that was to literally just shovel trillions of dollars of money into bankers' pockets and say, are you okay now? And, and, then we, and then we ensured, we made sure that they would actually get their bonuses because they might quit their jobs if they didn't get their bonuses. <laughs> that was the rationale. So if we could do that, and it was, you know, in some estimates, uh, you know, say many trillions of dollars, some say 18 trillion, some say 29 trillion. Those were the resources that the government leveraged uh, to solve that quote unquote crisis, right? So what's the problem here? Right. And, and when we look at history, every single big thing that any of our countries have ever done, whether it be bailing out Wall Street or World War II or the Civil War or this incredible, you know, uh, wave of industrialization that the U.S. had in the 1880s, every single time it's paid for in the same ways. We tax, right? We do increase taxes. We should, we should increase taxes on the rich in the U.S. because over the last 30 years, we've, we've just had this incredible redistribution of wealth from working class and middle class people to the rich, through, uh, mainly through the tax code and a lot of other things. So we should, of course, we should raise taxes on the rich and on uh, corporations in some ways. Uh, but we, we also are going gonna to borrow some. It's how we always do it. And that's okay because the Green New Deal is going to be massively in, uh, growing the economy. So the government will have no problem paying off those debts. We also are going to be doing some non-debt monetary expansion, which right now, if you ask any mainstream economist, they will tell you, yes, that's what we have to do. That's what we did when we were bailing out Wall Street. That's what we did when we had World War II. That's just, of course, that's what we do. Whenever we do something that is going to massively grow the economy, the money supply also has to grow. There's no threat of inflation because you're massively growing the economy. You need a little bit more money to chase around all this new stuff that you're producing. And then the final way that we're going to pay for it is we're going to leverage private capital. So right now, there are trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars sitting in these giant money management firms like BlackRock and Vanguard. And they're crying because they don't have anywhere to put their money now that we're not allowing them to gamble on our homes and guaranteeing it, right? So they're like, where can we invest and get a little... Uh, you know, guaranteed return. Well, the Green New Deal is where they will be able to invest. So we have a thing on the podcast where I am installed as a benign supreme leader. Uh, if we were to appoint you, what do you think, Minister, Minister for Climate? Yeah. Yeah. What would, what would be the first thing you would do on day one? I would do a sit-in in the Prime Minister's office demanding a Green New Deal, <laughs> demanding a plan for the Green New Deal. Which is what Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> did in Nancy Pelosi's office. Right, exactly, and that's what brought this whole thing to the fore, yeah. Now, the, the last thing I just want to say is, you said you were looking for some unlikely candidates, non-politicians, people with sort of great social justice motivations. <laughs> <laughs> What, you want me to what, 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 what do you think about Jeff? Jeff for 2020, have we got a slogan? I do, yeah. It would be, make mornings late again. Would that fit on a cap, though? I think, you know, if we chose the right font. Zach Exley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, well what do you think? It's been very exciting to, uh, to, to see the yes. young people protesting. Uh, there was a lot of great energy and optimism in amongst the pessimism about yeah, the planet's future, the optimism definitely. just seeing the young people. I also uh, really liked what Zach said, the way they're pitching this Green New Deal as being a huge project like the wartime effort, because it is just a fact that countries find money and find ways of doing things when they're in crises like very wars or the financial very crisis. Good and, and, you know, this is potentially a bigger crisis than all of them. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that also really attracts me to it, and this is going to sound political, but it's not. It's not. It's not sort of meant to be sort of party political. Is that if you think about that episode we did about the sort of divides in our society, this is a way to cross the divides because the green part appeals to people whose whose first instinct is to be environmentalist and to care about that, but I think the New Deal part appeals to people who are rightly saying what's my future what's my kids future what jobs are there for them to do and there are jobs to do and in a way i think there's a sort of glass ceiling on on the environment and support for the environment but i think people are sort of broadly supportive but they feel like it's sort of outside the sphere of their immediate everyday concerns but this takes it absolutely to the everyday concerns the bread and butter concerns that people rightly have Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And here to pitch us some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're delighted to be joined by comedian Olga Koch. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thank you for coming. And we were just having an interesting conversation before we turned the microphones on about how you came to comedy. Yes. So I moved to the West when I was um, a 14-year-old. Um, from from the East. From Russia. From Russia. Sorry, I didn't even cover that. Right. So I was born and raised in Russia. And even though I think I was like in the progressive sector of families, in Russia being progressive is still like quite antiquated gender norms and homophobia is quite common. And I remember getting to, so I moved to the UK first and then the US. And then the only thing that would change my mind was if people made fun of me or if I watched a TV show or like a sitcom in which the inconsistencies or the hypocrisy of those views was pointed out. And that was the only thing that could change my mind. And also what's so great about that is you very rarely hear people talk about how attitudes change over time. You know, even of if, their own. Yeah, even, yeah, your yeah. own attitudes. Every, yeah. Everybody walks around yeah. like they came pre-programmed yeah. with <laughs> a perfect set of ideals. But we've, we've all sort of, um, if you look at how society was 20 or 30 years ago, we've all come a long way since Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. Oh, big time. I remember reading an interview. I want to say it was in the Rolling Stone, but I'm not sure. I think Ted Cruz said he hadn't changed any of his opinions since the age of 17. And that is the most terrifying thing <laughs> I have ever heard in my it life. says a lot about Ted Cruz. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and, and you, you're about to go out on tour, is that right? Yes, I'm going on tour. And um, what, is, what is the show? Um, the show is called Fight. It's a really exciting show, I think. It's about it basically traces back the history of Russia from the year 1978 to present day in a fun and suspenseful way. Why does it start in 1978? Because that's the day, the the year and the day in which year my parents met. You were born in 1992, Two. right? The year that Russia elected its first ever president, which started a very long history of Russian people electing presidents all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> well th- there we go i think there's yeah. enough there yeah. to tantalize we don't want to give away yeah. too much yeah. about yeah. the show uh olga you've brought along some ideas with you what, what's uh, what's your first one hear me out <laughs> with my american accent uh i think we should rebrand corporate tax as investments into startups 
Okay, so when companies pay the corp- corporation tax... Right, so Amazon doesn't want to t- yeah. pay tax. What they want to do is angel invest into, like, cool startups. So what if the UK is a cool startup? Right. Yeah. We're not exactly a startup as a country. <laughs> I mean, we might be having problems that are akin to startups at this particular moment. So we take, like, capitalism's greatest hits. We do, instead of a taxman, we have, like, sexy pharmaceutical reps. Do you know what I mean? And they just show up and they're like, invest on the ground floor. This is going to be huge. It's sort of saying to companies, you're investing in the country. That's what corporate tax exactly. is. Exactly. So just rebrand corporate tax. Don't make it sound like corporate tax. Corporate tax is not sexy. Do you think that would make, it, <laughs> do you think that would make Amazon more likely to pay, though? I'm not sure it would. <laughs> Anything to get them to yeah. pay. Like, you know how you can tell a sponsorship? So what if it's like for a couple months, it'll be Home Depot's United Kingdom? That's true. <laughs> this health service is brought to you by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the flag, you get you can buy space on the on the UK flag <laughs> for like a month at a time. I had a friend who had an idea that you should be able to buy space on riot shields, on police <laughs> riot shields, because like if if they're ever used, they're always on the front page of every newspaper and every TV news bulletin. <laughs> I mean, that could that could bring in some money for the police. Ed's just giving me you a look. Ads on oh, buses. Come on, he's giving me a look. So yeah, I'm looking you're, you're at disapprove- that disapprovingly. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a good idea. Uh, Olga, what do you have next? So, you know how in football you pick a referee from a neutral country that doesn't really care about who wins? Definitely. Same with news. We have so much bias in the news. What if we get, like, Polish people to cover, I like, really, Paraguayan news? I like this idea. <laughs> so there's no bias because they don't have any investment. So the news Just is come by people with no skin in the game. Yes, exactly. And so we know that it's the most impartial news can get. Yeah, because, you know, even impartial news can have its structural biases but this this wouldn't exist in this scenario exactly now let me raise the issue of the eurovision song contest (laughs) (laughs) because when i was a child and i used to watch the eurovision song contest um i always you know there are definitely alliances that develop aren't there oh big time i mean you've got to make sure there isn't some hidden sort of business going on do you see what i mean okay well i see the point you're making but how is it that a different country wins the eurovision song contest every year good question so i mean alliances only go so far and it's worked out very well for us having uh, an australian run a lot of the british news media that's (laughs) gone really (laughs) he's very he's very objective yeah um i definitely think there's something in this there is also a bit of a see others See yourself as others see you, which we are very bad at doing, I think, here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We think that the whole world's consumed with Brexit, <laughs> but actually it's just us. And it's like the unfi- and finally item yeah, on yeah. German TV. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we sort of, we think, we sort of think we're the centre of the world. Yes. And so a great way to put that in perspective is have... No Hugh Edwards. I mean, I like Hugh Edwards on the 10 o'clock <laughs> news, but there's no Hugh Edwards and it's in, instead which country... That that sort of cover Iceland maybe Iceland. There we go. We we like the Iceland close enough. Don't we're we? on the same time zone ish. We love Iceland. Well, I think I think this is uh, this is definitely one. We're definitely on. I'm, I, I definitely I'm, yeah. I'm definitely I'm on for this. And and Olga, what's your final idea? My final idea is we need to get more people voting, but you've got to incentivize them. So if we either rebrand it as a whole lottery or just replace captcha with voting. Replace capture. You know, Soho. Like when you fill in any online form, you have to like I'm prove not a you're robot. human. Exactly. There, you're like, well, if you want to prove you're a human, choose out of these candidates and their policies. Oh, I see. So, like, it's a sort of, it's like a kind of at the end of a, you know, filling in your right. password for exactly. whatever. I, I would rather have that than click the boxes where you see traffic lights. Oh my god, it's so hard. <laughs> it is hard. I, I fail it often because I think I'm really good and I'll be even even if the corner of a traffic yeah. light sort of crosses into another square, I'll, I will include that square. Bridges. Be, yeah, yeah, bridges, yeah, traffic yeah. lights. <laughs> but it's uh, really annoying when you yeah. get into that, honestly. And then they say, you know, you can listen to the part. Also, I'm afraid I find those password, the, the, the sort of reproduce these numbers from the bot or these letters oh, yeah, and numbers. Yeah. Is that I, a G or is it a nine? I know, it's absolutely impossible. Yeah. I yeah. always i mean that is like disaster yeah i would happily have voting exactly and instead, instead you're like so what do you that? think we should do about the potholes in our constituency <laughs> do you think people would be more likely to vote if you got an automatic lottery ticket five i know I what you I mean about the ethics more, i would be more likely to commit voter fraud and try and vote several times <laughs> to increase true. my odds of winning i sort of think the ethics feels a bit 
But to be fair, like the American, st- the, the I voted stickers and the, the rise of social media, 100% has increased voter turnout, especially in millennials, for sure. Do you think? Oh, definitely. People, okay, if I post about it, if I post about it with the sticker of like, I voted. Oh, definitely. Isn't there some, the Taylor Swift effect in yeah. Tennessee, I think it was, yeah. or somewhere? Where More people went... register. I mean, the Democrats still didn't win. Yeah. But like, I feel like if you get to show yeah. it off. Yeah. Then it's more incentive. The thing is, because you are a millennial, aren't you? Yeah. You see, that's quite interesting because Jeff also considers himself a, a, a borderline millennial. Ed, but, Ed bought but, me this for Christmas, uh, as well as a Oh, let's cheese. have oh a game. Okay, well, he, he bought me a, okay, a, a on, game we, called How Millennial. Come on, we've got to have <laughs> pass it over. Have you not opened it? Oh, yeah, I was waiting to play it on the podcast. I meant well, to, I think this is the moment. I meant to open it oh last week. But, uh, what, do we, what do we have to do? We're, I don't know. Open, open it. Open it. How old are you, if you don't mind my asking? Okay. Okay. Sorry. I take it back. <laughs> he does. He does actually. <laughs> yeah. So seventies. Born in the seventies. I can't open it. Ed was born in the sixties. The age of flower power. We'll do a short version of it. I'll open up these questions. Oh my god! It's millennial pink. The color of the game is also millennial pink. Is pink millennial? It, it's a, a very specific shade of pink. That's like a dusty yeah, pink. That's called that. millennial. That's millennials. Uh, <laughs> We recognise it. <laughs> Only millennials can see yeah, it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll give you the question cards. Aim of the game, to perform charades to your teammates and get them to guess as many as possible in 60 seconds. <laughs> Decide which team will go first, roll the dice, see which random rule they must stick to for the next... Random rule they must stick to for the next 60 seconds. There's a dice. Can you... Oh, being random is very millennial. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's, that's so, so random. random. <laughs> so what... what... Describe through the oh one ah uh, uh, right okay okay Jeff you're gonna go right okay so take a card okay, okay. and then you're gonna roll this dice one is described through the art of mime two is well I'll tell you what they are okay. right okay. okay just roll the so dice roll. and it is five. five describe using two words only uh color mentioned a million pink um sweetheart what's the category popular culture sweetheart squeeze that would be what main baby, squeeze. That's what a baby boomer would say. Oh, side piece. Bay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> well done. Uh, third was... one. Streaming music. Spotify. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> you should be clapping Fantastic. me because I was very good at condensing those into two words. You're very good. Oh, yeah, you're very, very brilliant. <laughs> right, shall I do one? Yeah. Okay. Oh, God, this is going to be really difficult. Oh, shit. <laughs> Five also. Two words. What's the category? Famous people. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly. <laughs> um, transgender? Janet Mark? Caitlyn Jenner. It says Kylie Jenner. Oh, Kylie Jenner is um, yeah. her daughter. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that's close. Um, um, La La Land. Emma Stone? Ryan Gosling? Yep. Uh... Oh shit! Um, I don't know who this is. Um, Channing Tatum, <laughs> Magic Mike, Magic Mike, Double XL. Ed, have you never seen Magic Mike? Olga, XXL? you get a go now. All right. Okay. You have to roll though. Okay. Okay. Describe through the medium of song. Medium of song. Okay. Uh, What's the category? Uh, popular culture. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. You used to call me on your iPhone. Boom! Yeah, so right. iPhone, that's it, yeah. Boom, that's quite myself. a millennial. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll say um, that now. Boom! <laughs> you sound like Basil Brush when you do Oh, it. fuck off. <laughs> boom, boom, I know you know what you mean, actually. Have you heard of Basil Brush? No. Oh, right, honestly, it's great, Basil Brush. What is that? What is that? It's a little puppet fox in tweed. Oh, okay. (laughs) Just bear with us. We'll find Bezel Brush for you. Keep going. Do you have a game for that? Okay, so this is a song as well. Ready? It's the iron and the... It's the dun-dun-dun-dun. Working up to the challenge of our rival. Okay, so... Tiger, Uh, Tiger, yes. Tiger Balm. Tiger, Tiger. Whereas millennials um, go to buy phone charges. Other kinds of... Other kinds of tigers. Lion. uh, What's a millennial... Lion King. No, what's a... Yeah, but what's a millennial kind of term for... Cougar. Boom! Yes, okay, boom. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> sorry. Um, That's Basil Brush, just in case you wondered. Oh, fun. Right. Okay, he's great. Yeah. Uh, where's he from? Like, what's he's the... like a puppet. It's like a puppet television show in the okay. 1970s from Britain. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen YouTube clips of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
saw it in a gif once yeah um, exactly so- <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's someone sent you on snap didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> um okay so this one okay this one's a bit all right so I'm going to sing a song, but then I'll have to just do more. Okay, so the song is... These words... What's the face? Natasha Bedingfield. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Right, but the only thing I said in that song were these words. Okay, so... These words, these words, these words are some words. Who writes? Which millennials write? Lena Dunham. I mean, but what's the kind of... How do they write? Do what Scribblet, medium do they write um, on? Cyber something. Hack. Yeah, so they don't write on paper. They, they write blog. On... They Boom! Bloggers. And who are they? Boom! Yes, bloggers. bloggers. Yeah, bloggers. Okay. Three, I mean, that was a stretch from these it, words. I'm sorry. Three, three out of three for me. Great. So it's all about you, is it? Great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying uh, that uh, uh, Olga and I have sort of this millennial telepathy. Basically, going. what I've realised about this is that the best way of making you look like a millennial is doing anything with me. Because, <laughs> I, because I'm so ignorant of all popular culture that any passing reference you have to any element of popular culture therefore helps you look like you're a millennial. Olga, you, you're, you're on tour at the moment. If people want to find out about that, if they Google Olga Koch. Or fight. go to rockandrollga.com. Rock and roll, rock and roll, go. Yeah, very good. Thank you very much. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. With the sounds in the background, the protesting sounds in the background, it's time for us to go, isn't it? It is. I think our first uh, our first demonstration together went quite well. Is that true? Is that our yeah, first demonstration? It is. It, I, well, I don't think we've been on another one, have we? No. And and what? The first of many. Let's hope so. What what I didn't manage to convey, I don't think yet, is just the levels of millimania that were going on out there. You know, so many people wanted selfies with you. Well, the thing is, my staff had to, like, bribe lots of people in advance <laughs> to sort of, you know, like to so, remind them who I was. It was and, to, you know, to such an extent that sometimes when people had selfies with Ed, he hadn't even offered first, yeah, I know. which is usually yeah, which the way it unusual, goes. Which is yeah. sort of unusual, isn't it? I felt a bit, I don't know if people watch Veep, but the, uh, the Vice President, Selena Meyer, has an assistant called Gary who carries her bag for her I felt very much like that with your coat throughout the whole thing I know I, and, I, and I know she didn't offer to I take know, it back I afterwards as we... I, left, I left my coat with you yes, yes she did yeah Yeah. yeah. thanks for that yeah. am I a good coat handler do you know that my first day ever working in politics was working for Harriet Armand and she lost her coat and I spent the whole day or felt like the whole day trying to find her coat so now you know how it feels I do yeah <laughs> should we thank our guests yes uh, I'd like to thank Anne Pettifer and Zach Exley and thanks to the brilliant Olga Koch Emma Caution produced our podcast uh, with music from Ed Seed James, James Deacon, Deacon did our idol who's the announcer there? Gail Lofthouse is our Gail. announcer and Emily Power did our artwork right I think I'm going to go back down and join the demonstration yep He's been Jeff School Skipping Lloyd. He's been Ed. Ed, can I have a selfie? Milliband. Milliband. <laughs> and these have been reasons to be cheerful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.